First slide up, Pete. Maya Angelou said, sometimes you don't know what you need until God blesses you with it. Now, I've learned over the years that God's will, God's way of doing things, is far more superior and well-informed and good intending and beneficial to all and keen to bring more love and joy and peace and grace and hope into this world than my will can ever possibly be. But it's not until you're in a crunch, when things are difficult or you get some bad news or you really need to step out in faith or you're searching for God's will, that that you come to realise the power of God's will. Now, that should be a daily experience, but if we're honest, it's probably an experience we'd all like to have more often. I'll give you an example. Over the last year, we've been encouraging Village to pray for female youth leaders. So currently, or up until this point, we've had Hazel. Now, Hazel is, if you haven't met Hazel, you've missed out. Hazel is a ball of love and fun and, uh, and just humour. She lives just on the street over there and would meet us on Thursday evenings to do youth here for a couple of hours with our youth ministry. This is our youth ministry. I'm going to turn my clicker on first. All right, go to the next slide, Pete. This is our youth ministry. I'm a little bit worried about what Jonty's doing with that bowling ball on Emmy's head, to, just to my right. Man, if we'd have known that. But this is our youth ministry, and, and they meet um, every Thursday night, and Hazel comes along, and she enables us to do it because of her gender. Now, she's also wonderful. She, she is a keen arm wrestler, and she took on a number of our young people and won. And Hazel is about 120 years old. So it was, it was, I can say that now, she's not here. She'd shoot me if she heard me say that. But she would turn up with food, more food than I've ever seen a single person be able to carry. And all that food every week was completely demolished by our young people that were there. And so we've been praying because Hazel's leaving. She's got an arm wrestling injury. She's just got to pull out. No, she's leaving. She's going down to um, Tweed. And as a result, we're like, we need a female youth leader. And I know how God's will is going to pan out on this one. Like, I know. What's going to happen is that one Sunday afternoon, someone's going to walk in. They're going to be female, young, have no kids, but have a passion and a deep-seated desire to serve in youth ministry. They're going to be called. They're going to be of great character, amazing gifts. And they're going to have in their bag a list of references. And those references are going to be so glowing that when I look at them, I offer them a job on the spot. And immediately they say, yes, when can I start? I'll start now. I know how God's will is going to work with these sort of things, right? So we don't need to worry about anything except what actually has happened. What has happened is that three of our young people concluded their secondary college pretty much and turned 18 in between last year and this year. And two of those three are female. So Sam Kerr isn't. (laughs) But Emmy and Kate are, and they've said, yeah, youth ministry, we'd love to contribute. We'd love to be part of this. We'd love to do that. And I sit there going, man, didn't see it coming. 
It's so cool that God has opened up these ways. Because God's will surprises us. Right? It keeps us off guard. It holds us in this space of faith until it's fulfilled, which is what God's will is meant to do. And when we started Village, not in a million years, and those of you that were there on day one, you know, not in a million years did I ever think we would be here five years later voting whether we should merge with Burley Hedge Uniting Church. Like, never entered my mind. Just like in 1960, I would wage that the Presbyterian church that met here, no, the Methodist church that met here and the Presbyterian church that met over there, if we put the next photo up, Pete, would, um, would ever have thought that um, a, a merge was possible. And that merger was so quick. Can we get this working? Otherwise, I'm, I, can't, I can't concentrate. Thanks. And their merger was so quick. Our merger took two years. On 17th of July, 1967, Presbyterian Church set up a subcommittee. A Methodist church went, oh, we should do that too. The subcommittee was to merge. On the 24th of August, 1967, that was one month later, they met. And one month after that, in September, they combined their offerings and split it 50-50. So the offerings that were taken here and the offerings taken there, put into a central pool and cut right down the middle. On the 1st of October, 1967, which was one month after that, they had merged. The Methodist Church taking the morning slot here, and the Presbyterian Church taking the evening slot here, and the children's ministry running across the road in the, um, the Presbyterian Church that's now owned by the Christian Science um, Church. February of 1968, which was four months on, the Sunday school was combined and by 1972 it was official and the two churches merged they called themselves you ready for this 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 name the methodist presbyterian cooperation church of burley heads you just don't want people to ask which church you go to you're like oh i'm gonna get, get this right now five years after that the uniting church came into being Five years later, the Uniting Church went, that's an amazing idea. We should do that across the whole country. As I said to the crew this morning, they were ahead of their time, significantly. They were the second church in Australia to actually do that kind of merge. And when the church, and the church thrived under this new merger, Numbers grew, resources were shared, children's ministry exploded, volunteerism increased, missional community impact grew, people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. There were 400 people that then turned up for the opening of this building that looked, go back one, or oh, don't, that looked like that building you saw just before. It's similar, similar to this, but there's been some changes since 400 people that came because they sold the Presbyterian Church across the road and used all the money plus some to build the church that we are in today. So we enter into today's vote walking on new ground. Sorry, we enter into today's vote not walking on new ground, but reclaiming ground that God has already laid. We are continuing on what God started so many years ago. We are part of God's restorative work in Burley that began a long time ago. We are joining God in his greatest joy to bring people together 
and to himself. But following the will of God is a truly terrifying prospect. It should strike fear into you, right? The creator of the universe, the creator of everything, says he has a task for you to do. The task is never going to be a small, accomplishable thing in your, on your own. It's always going to be something that causes us to go, what? You want me to do what? I, I can't do that. And God goes, exactly, you can't do that by yourself. That's why I've called you to it. It's been the start that way from the beginning of the church. The Apostle Peter, he found himself as this accidental leader of the church. He was the one guy, because he had the big mouth, that happened to stand up at the wrong time um, and explain to everybody what had happened in this festival called Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had come and filled so many people, and people were like, what's going on? And Peter's like, well, someone's got to say something, and he starts speaking. And all of a sudden, they're like, Peter, you're the leader of this thing, this movement called the church. And Peter's like, yeah, what am I doing? And so they went about sharing this gospel message. And they shared it with, with every Jew that would listen. And so many Jews gave their lives to Christ. They were converted to the Christian faith. And then in prayer one day, as, as, as Peter is, is praying, the Holy Spirit comes to Peter in this dream kind of state and speaks to him. And says, and, and, and it's recalled this way in the book of Acts. He saw heaven open. This is Peter talking about his dream or, or the dream that Peter's having. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. It was outrageous. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean in my entire life, ever, ever, God. Peter had never eaten anything unclean, ever, because he was a God-fearing Jew. God-fearing Jews didn't eat things that were unclean. That would be to defy what was in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus, their Torah, their law for living. They didn't eat unclean food. You just didn't, because if you did, you said, God, I don't want to be a part of this unique thing you're doing. But God had these rules to keep this, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, sacred and set apart and holy. And one of those things was that you couldn't just eat everything you liked. You had to eat what God deemed as clean. Peter's whole desire was to honour God with his life. And so he'd never eaten anything unclean because he wanted to honour God. He wanted to be holy and pleasing to God. And he relied on the law for that cleanliness. But as Peter's about to find out, it's all gone. It's all vanished. Think about it for a moment. Everything that a Jew eats or drinks or wears or goes or does, how they worshipped, where they worshipped, how they engaged with the temple, how they brought their sacrifices, when they prayed, what they prayed, everything. Who they mixed with, how they treated strangers, every religious construct they had was deconstructed by what Jesus did on the cross. Everything they knew and found security and safety in was just taken away by what Jesus did on the cross. But God obviously needs to convince Peter further. Just like God needs to convince us further. 
We cling to things because they are attached to God, but they are not God and they cannot save us. We cling to worship styles and structure. We cling to what the internal of a church building should look like and what the external of a church building should look like. We cling to time slots for worship services and how things have been in the past and what we really, really want and who does what and how things work and what suits us and makes us comfortable and the regularity with which we come and worship God. And it's not just us, it's Burley Heads uniting as well. It's what we do as humans. In fact, in every church, you have this problem. We seek security in what we can see and do. And in doing so, we forsake the security we can have in Jesus. We seek security in what we can see and do. And in doing so, we forsake the security we can have in Jesus. We actually stifle and restrain the spread of the gospel. We confine the kingdom of God to these four walls. We stay safe. We like to play it safe. And it was Peter's sin as well as ours. It was easy to talk, to talk about the Messiah to a Jewish believer and bring them to who Christ was, but to a Gentile? You don't go anywhere near those people. The law says that. Keep, keep, keep clean, Peter. So the angel responds to, to Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times because Peter was stubborn, had a thick head. Happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back up to heaven. For Peter, to call something unclean and impure was him saying, don't mess around with that. Don't, don't muck about with that. Don't change that. That needs to stay exactly how it is because I find my salvation in that. It's the means by which I can be saved. And God says, no, it's not. Jesus has changed all of that. Jesus is the only means by which we can be saved. Church and how we do church and anything else cannot save us. We hold on to it sometimes like it can, but it can't save us. God is saying to us today, you don't need any of this, none of it, to be saved. To, to step into your giftings, to grow as disciples, to love and enjoy God, to worship God with our hearts, to reach out with the Holy Spirit into the community. You don't need any of it. But the fear of losing that which we've put our safety and our security in, that's not Jesus, are the very things holding us back from the mission God is calling us into. So while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit says to Peter, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs and do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. I've organized it all. Just go with them. Now, those three men were Roman citizens. They were sent by a Roman centurion, which meant they were Gentiles. And to accept an invitation from a Gentile meant you went to do what with that Gentile? Eat. So God says, I've sorted it all. I've even called them. Now go with them. And in the next... Peter has this incredible time and he talks all about it. It's amazing. And in the next chapter, we hear about Peter's account. In Acts 11, 
The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God because Peter had gone and preached to them and they'd accepted Christ. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, so those who were really adamant about the law still, they criticized him. They said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. The cardinal sin, Peter, that'll get you kicked out. You ate with them. He ate with them. He ate with them. He ate unclean and impure food with them that had been forbidden his whole life. He ate with them. He stepped away from every previous security he had. And he trusted God with everything. Now here's what's interesting. Caesarea is a port city. Check out that map, Pete. It's a port city. And at a port city, you mainly eat what? Seafood. Come on, guys. Seafood. It was fine for some people to eat fish. But in a port city, the delicacy? Oh, to be a guest of a Roman centurion, you had seafood on the menu. You had prawns, squid, octopus, crayfish. All no-go food for a God-fearing Jew. That would have been what was on offer. And we see interesting two sides to the coin. Who likes prawns? Show of hands. Yeah, I really feel for people that can't eat prawns because of the allergic reaction. Man, that must be a tough life. Tough life. I love prawns. Can anyone remember the first time you tasted a prawn? The very first time. I can. I can. I was seven years old. I was in Portugal with mum and dad. We used to live in the UK and so we holidayed to Portugal and we went out for dinner one night and we went into a restaurant and we're looking down the menu and there's this thing called king prawns and any food that has king in front of it has to be good, right? Like, wow, amazing. And so I say, when mum and dad thinking I might order fish and chips or nuggets or whatever was on the kids menu when they said what do you want I said I want the king prawns and mum said no you don't which meant I really did right I was oh if mum thinks I shouldn't have them I definitely need to have them she says no choose something else I said no I want these she goes you can't have them I said why like Hamish he uses his hands to do this stuff why and mum goes because what will happen is they'll bring them out and you don't realize this but you have to deshell them all Ralph and I know you you'll get two prawns in and you'll be like mom dad can you deshell them and we'll be like oh we've just spent so much money on the prawns we'll have to deshell them and I said what every seven-year-old kid says what no I'll do it I've been sucked in with that one with my own kids so many times should know by now no I'll do it and I think there was this moment where they're like, all right, this is the last time you ever get to choose what meal you ever want on a restaurant, ever. We'll trust you. And so they ordered the king prawns. And I still remember, I tried to find a picture of what it looked like. Um, they looked really nice. But it was this tower, this glorious tower of prawns and that little bowl with the lemon. I was just like, oh, and the smell. And the, oh, my mouth's watering now. I'm actually feeling hungry. And, and I looked at these things. I'm like, what what on earth do you do with it this big head stuck on it I'm like, do i eat the head don't eat the head oh, okay 
And so I got shown how to, to, to deshell the first one and then I decimated the rest. All of them, every single one. Delicious, amazing, completely devoured, all of it. Then mum and dad regretted having to buy me prawns every time we went out to a restaurant. Peter's mind would have been blown the first time eating a prawn or seafood for the very first time with this meal with the Gentiles when he's talking about Jesus and what Jesus can do. Now, if you've lived your entire life on a very strict and very bland diet, the introduction of rich, spicy seafood into that diet doesn't make for a good night's sleep. You get my drift, right? It wouldn't have been pleasant for Peter after that happened. And we see these two sides to what happens when we're called into faith. Faith is this incredible experience, but it's accompanied by initial discomfort. When we step out in faith, it's meant to feel a little bit awkward and unnatural and too much and uncertain. And how is this going to go? Because God is ultimately in charge and God calls us to big things. And church life has never stopped being a, the engine room for that to take place. In order to taste the new fruit God has for us, we must embrace the discomfort that accompanies it. Imagine Peter, he's trekking from Joppa where he gets this vision to Caesarea where he knows what's ahead of him. He's going with Gentiles to eat with Gentiles and he must have felt like he was betraying his entire nation. All of his past, all of his upbringing, all of the advice from his rabbis and his teachers and his parents about how to live. And now he's walking away from that, not willingly, not because he wants to, but because God has said he's walking away from everything that would have offered him security. And all he has is God. All he has is Jesus. All he has is what Jesus did on the cross. And it was enough. It was enough. Jesus is enough. He only had Jesus and Jesus is enough. We only have Jesus, but Jesus is enough. When we left New Life to start Village, I had to hold on to these words like every day. We moved away from the largest and best resource uniting church by a long way in the country. My previous role was young adults pastor and associate pastor. I was pretty good at it. It was pretty set. It was pretty easy. There wasn't a great deal of challenge, which was partly why God was stirring and calling me on to something else. We were in a big team. We could accomplish incredible things. But I didn't know any Christians. The only Christians I knew were Christians that people in 12-2, our young adults community, brought along to church who I got to minister to. And I loved that. But there was something wrong about that in my spirit. I'm like, why don't I know enough people that don't know Jesus that I can tell them about Jesus? And so we started this thing called Village. Kind of from nothing. Didn't have a paid team. There was Ori and myself. Neither of us were full-time. The resources that we had were the, the sum of what we gave to this thing to do. There was no backup. It was a sense of just like floating out into the ocean. We didn't have anything. But we had Jesus. And Jesus is enough. Jesus is always 
enough. We only had Jesus and Jesus is enough. In fact, we actually don't want anything more than Jesus because Jesus is enough. Father Sona Alexander said it's easy for us to fall into a good habit and leave behind a good heart. When I read that quote this week, I was rattled by it. I was like, oh, that's nice. I went, oh, actually, that's really convicting and compelling and challenging. Church has a way of becoming a good habit, hey. Well, sometimes it's not as good a habit as we'd like it to be. But it becomes easy to lose your heart for Jesus when we rely on the church to do that for us. When we rely on coming to a church or meeting with others to be enough, those things become our God and we become disgruntled with them. When we put more weight in what we get from the church than what we can give to the church, we're actually replacing the reign of Jesus in our lives with a consumer preference. We're actually saying it's more important than I get, that I get than I give. But church cannot save you. It just cannot save you. We are the church and we cannot save each other. It's impossible. Only Jesus can save. And Jesus is enough. It must break the heart of God when we put more expectations on the church than we do on God. When we expect more of the church than we do of God, God's like, no, don't expect anything. They're broken and messed up just like you are. Expect of me. Expect of me. If we all expect of God, something significant and wonderful and incredible takes place. And at the heart of our decision today is the same thing that lies at the heart of every Western Christian ever. It's the same question that the church has wrestled with for 2,000 years. Is God's will more important than what church looks like? That's at the end of the day. It seems really clear, easy when you state it like that. We all know the answer, right? The answer is God's will. We know the answer, but we, gosh, it's not that easy, is it? It's hard, and it should be hard, and we should feel it, because then it costs, and then it's valuable. It's loaded with 2,000 years of experiments and traditions and baggage that have taken on from goodness knows how many million of people. We each have a personality preference that we'd like things to be a certain way just because we have a personality is what it is and it likes things a certain way. We will have a positive memory of when church was at its greatest. Why can't it be back like it was then? We have pressures surrounding us by culture that tells us to do this and do that and this is how the world engages with the church. Which is why it's imperative to honour the rhythm of stopping and listening and discerning and then obeying. And it feels like we've been in two years of stopping, of listening, of discerning. And tonight we obey. We just do what we feel God is calling us to do. So I want to invite you to do something that we've never done at Village before, which makes it kind of like cutting edge and hip and exciting. The problem is what we're about to do is something that the church has been doing for thousands of years. It's a responsive prayer. Peter, if we just want to chuck that up. And basically, I'm going to say the bits that aren't in bold, and you said the bits that are in bold, and it's just this page. 
And the parts in bold are welcome, Jesus, welcome. But as I pray these words, I want them to become our words. Because regardless of which way you feel you need to vote, the most important thing is who Jesus is in our lives. Full stop. And post tomorrow morning, the most important thing will be in our lives, is Jesus enough? There's very little to do with what the shape of the church is. It's all about, is Jesus enough? And therefore it becomes, what is your will, God, for us? So let's pray these words. And I just invite you to, to ponder and to pray the words that I say, and then to warmly and strongly acknowledge those words with that response, welcome, Jesus, welcome. Jesus, I welcome an expansion of your love and release my pride. Welcome, Jesus, welcome. Jesus, I welcome the unity you prayed for and release the ways I contribute to the discord. Welcome, Jesus, welcome. Jesus, I welcome a compassionate understanding of my brother and sister in Christ and release the judgment I often pass on them. Welcome, Jesus, welcome. Jesus, I welcome the leading of your spirit in my life and commit myself to obedience. Welcome, Jesus, welcome. Amen. Lord, I, I ask that you would just reign in our lives. You would sit yourself so significantly and clearly in the center of all we are and all we do as individuals and as a church that we cannot ever look away from you. That every need we have is fulfilled in you. That every desire we yearn for is fulfilled in you. That every doubt and fear is extinguished by you. Lord, we do not want to live apart from you, estranged from you. We want to live with you. And so draw closer to us. Right now, and this week, and this month, closer than you've ever been. May we see a powerful move of your spirit, Lord. We ask this in your name.